Thank you so much for being here this morning. Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church. As a church family, we're making our way through Mark's gospel. This morning we are Mark chapter 7, uh, beginning at verse 14. Uh, little theologians, are you looking at me? Thank you for being here. Uh, very, very happy to have you here. I've had a great deal of fun hanging out with you uh, these past uh, Wednesday evenings. Uh, little theologians, I'd like for you to, as you listen to me preach on this passage, I'd like for you to draw a picture of the center of a power plant. The center of a power plant. Just think of the biggest, most complex power plant you can. Find the center of it. Well, our passage again is Mark chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, welcome. Uh, all of you, before we read this passage, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, would you be a blessing to us in the hearing of your word, the thinking, contemplation of it? Would you be a blessing to us in the preaching of your word that you'd use my heart and my lips for your own purposes? Would you be a blessing uh, even in the very reading of your word? It is holy. It is our life. It is truth. Thank you for being with us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you didn't catch it, Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, uh, but his stomach and is expelled? This he declared, or thus he declared, all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, comes evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, every uh, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of our Lord. I don't know if you've ever tried to repair something and you never actually could. I have an example of that from a friend of mine who had a fairly serious accident on his bicycle. He was fine. Uh, but after uh, we tended to his body, we looked uh, long and hard at the bike because by all physical appearances, the bike, bike seemed to be just fine. But as he rode it, it was a little bit different. Something about it didn't quite fit. And so uh, m uh, my friend and I and my dad, we adjusted the bike, tweaked the bike, uh, played with stuff. He rode it a little bit, came back. We played with stuff some more. He rode it, came back. It never never quite worked. And it wasn't until quite a while where we studied the bike closely, we saw that there was a very slight bend to the frame. 
And it was almost imperceptible to the sight, but uh, my friend, as he's riding it around, he could feel it. Something didn't feel right. No, no uh, matter of, of adjustment to the bike ever made that weird feeling go away. It just felt weird. And you know, if we hadn't addressed the frame, you could make any number of adjustments and keep riding that bike, and in fact, keep riding that bike for a long period of time. But it would never be quite right. In fact, my friend would be able to make these little mental adjustments in his head and just learn how to ride that bike in such a way that he could account for the bentness of the frame. And he could create this list of uh, rules, of procedures for riding this particular bike. And he could give that list to someone else. And if someone else would follow those procedures, they could ride the bike too. They'd know that it pulls a little bit to the right and you have to do something to adjust for that. Not a big deal. They would know that occasionally when you turn the wheel, it's going to clip your toes. It's not a big deal. You just get used to it. You got to fix the frame. And if you don't fix the frame, well, you're just going to create a long list of rules to be able to make this bike work. And you're going to be able to make it work. But it's not going to be fixed. And this passage is about something more than riding a bike. This passage is actually about becoming pure before God, becoming undefiled, clean before God. And if that's ever going to happen, well, God's going to have to do that. Because we will live with the frame and we'll just make rules and we'll make life more than palatable. We'll make life happy and we'll feel fulfilled. But we're never going to be clean before God. This passage is about becoming pure before God. This passage tells us that the problem of defilement before God is a problem that resides in the heart of a person. And this passage hints at, more than explicitly saying, but hints at the fact that Jesus operates at that level of the heart to remove defilement and to remove it for good. But we mustn't make any mistake about it. The problem of defilement before God resides in the heart of a person. In fact, resides in the heart of every person. And as this passage begins, it begins from a position of ignorance. Not Jesus' ignorance, but the ignorance of the world, ignorance of the crowd, ignorance of the Pharisees around Jesus. But even the ignorance of the disciples themselves, you should feel that progression in the passage. And it begins in verses 14 through 15 uh, about the uh, ignorance of the world. This truth that Jesus is about to teach doesn't make sense to the world. First point of the sermon, verses 14 through 15. And Jesus, you see at the very beginning of our passage, is absolutely insistent. Hear me, all of you, and understand. And notice, in fact, who Jesus is actually talking to. Verse 1, at the very beginning of Mark chapter 7, verse 1 says that when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... But verse 1 is different than verse 14. Verse 1 is this presence of official people uh, here to oppose Jesus and to do it in a very technical way. You remember that argument at the beginning of, verse, of chapter 7 uh, was about washing, making oneself pure before God, washing away the defilement. 
But in verse 14, Mark tells us that Jesus called the people to him again, and it's hard to know exactly who those people are. It seems to be a generic enough statement that this is more than just the religious leaders. It's the religious leaders plus the crowd. That's what a number of uh, commentators believe is meant by the people. You see, Jesus, he's not after just the religious leaders. He's actually, well, he's actually after all of us. All of us have this way of living in which we think we are living in an undefiled manner. Defile, the, uh, a good translation for that is impure. That word for defile, look how often it's used. Twice in verse 15, look down the passage, verse 18, verse 20, verse 23. And when the word defile is used, it's always used as a verb. If you scan up in the passage, you're going to see in the English translation of the Bible in verse 2 and in verse 5, the word defile, but the word there is the word used as an adjective. It seems as, it seems as though uh, when Jesus comes to verse 15, he's talking about the action of undefiling oneself, not the adjective. They are defiled hands at the beginning of chapter 7. But here Jesus brings all of the people before him, people with religious authority and even common people. And he says that everyone has some way of becoming, being actively pure rather than impure. Everyone has some kind of ethic. Everyone has some kind of way to be good. Uh, everyone has some way of being well-liked. Everyone, religious leaders and all of us, have some, well, some way of becoming pure rather than impure. Do you think this applies to every human being? It does. And in fact, I can prove that it does. Think about how you are when you're on a job interview or a first date, or asking a bank for a profound sum of money. How are you when you go to church? I imagine for each of those scenarios, you're actually on your best behavior, and, and you have defined what best behavior means. So, for instance, I'm assuming that you wouldn't wear pajamas to your job interview. I'm just assuming that. You might. I'm assuming that on the first date, you're going to try very hard not to eat with your mouth open. You're going to use your best manners. Again, I'm assuming. And when you're sitting down in front of a loan processor and you're asking for a large sum of money, I'm pretty sure you're not going to be sharing an anecdote about how much you love to gamble. You check your actions, especially during these events. I mean, look around you. Here we are at church, and, and who are we all but very decent people? We're very decent people, aren't we? We don't talk this morning about our sadness, about our struggles, about our anger, about our depression. We dress nice and we smile. Well, all of us have a kind of ethic that in our minds helps us to well, be undefiled and pure. And Jesus, he's just been challenged about not following the rules that would make him pure. Remember, it's about washing. Where do those rules come from? Verse 5 of chapter 7 tells us the tradition of the elders. 
And because he is not following those traditions, he is uh, defiled, he is impure. Well, (laughs) this actually is cosmic because he doesn't follow those traditions. And if he doesn't follow those traditions, he's defiled not just before the religious leaders. They believe that he's defiled actually before God. All of us say this to Jesus. If I do these things, I won't be defiled before God. And if I do these things, I won't be defiled before others. We actually write our own tradition. Remember, this is not just the religious leaders. We do this. We write our own tradition, our own ethic, and that guides our actions. We know how to follow the code, and we know if we follow the code, we'll be pure. We'll avoid being seen as impure, and we know then how to behave on a job interview or the first date or the meeting with a loan officer, and we know how to go to church. But do others know this? You see, Jesus has been challenged about not following the rules, but even we know how to be pure before God. Why doesn't Jesus know how to be pure? Well, why don't others know how to follow your code? You know that they don't. You know of people that don't follow your code. And when they don't follow your code, they stand out to you. That's what the religious leaders are doing to Jesus. And in verse 15, Jesus, he actually reveals this great secret about Christianity. And the secret is this. Every world religion is going to tell you a certain kind of code or an ethic and offer that code or ethic in such a way that you're to believe that that code or that ethic is powerful enough to make you pure. Every world religion does this, but not Christianity. When Jesus says that there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, he's saying that your code, your tradition, your ethic cannot alter who you ultimately are as a human being. Who you are cannot be ultimately transformed by how you act. This is what Christianity teaches. You know, you can improve your life by reforming your actions. You can be liked by everyone, or at least nearly everyone. You can nail that job interview. You can turn that first date into a second date, and you can secure credit for a large purpose or purchase. But even when you do that, you are still, you're still you. You've transformed nothing. Now, this doesn't make sense to all of those who are before Jesus. You see that at the beginning of the passage. But nor does it make sense to even the disciples, because look what happens in verse 17. You'll notice there's no verse 16. Most translators believe that there's a copyist error in verse 16. Uh, Verse 16 is just a reduplicate somewhere else in Mark's gospel from chapter 4. So we jump right to 17, but look at the setting in 17. It changes. Not even the disciples get it. Notice that Jesus, he separates himself from the religious leaders from the crowds, and he enters a house. We don't know where this house is. We don't know whose house it is. He's just with his disciples, and he knows that his disciples don't get it. He says in verse 18, then are you also, notice that also, 
just like them? Are you also without understanding? And, and literally what that, what that word is in the Greek is, are you also senseless? And one commentator says that Jesus, he's absolutely exasperated. The disciples are apparently dull or dim-witted, and they aren't getting this defining characteristic of Christianity. Now, I want us to be careful here. I don't want us to be too hard on the disciples. Jesus here is speaking rather harshly to them, and he certainly, it would seem, from what Mark tells us, very disappointed in them. But in verse 17, what Jesus has just taught them, he says, is called a parable. The disciples call it a parable, don't they? Now, if you look at verse 15, verse 15, it doesn't doesn't look like a parable. You can read it aloud. It doesn't sound like a parable. But what Mark may mean by using this word parable is that what Jesus says in verse 15 is really hard to understand. It requires reflection, contemplation, a lot like a parable. And so, let's keep that in mind rather than being too harsh on the disciples. But look what happens in verse 18 and 19. Jesus, he gives this wonderful picture And sometimes when I think of the little theologian illustrations at the beginning of the sermon, I feel just a little bit foolish. I'm talking to children, trying to be as clear as possible. But verses 18 and 19, they feel, well, they feel a bit like Jesus is doing the very same thing. He's using a very simple illustration of what he means in verse 15. He says, when you eat something, it goes in your stomach and it's expelled. Simple enough. Well, you know, that always happens. You eat something, it goes in your stomach, and it's expelled. This is true if what you eat is pure or if what you eat is impure. Notice the the parenthetical statement in verse 19, uh, thus he declared all foods clean. This may be a comment of Peter to Mark. All foods are clean. You can get the background for that in Acts uh, chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, Peter's own experience where he learns that. But the illustration is so simple. It's clear. Uh, Food, it it doesn't have power in and of itself to make you defiled. It can make you sick. It can make you healthy. It can even kill you. But it doesn't have the power to alter your standing before God. That's what Jesus is saying. It's simply expelled. What Jesus is saying here in verses 18 and 19 was he's saying how verse 15 works. You can have the best code or the best tradition or the best ethic in the world, but it's never going to change who you are. That best tradition, code, or ethic is just going to be expelled. It gets you the job, it gets you the second date, gets you the loan, but that's all. It's hard for even the followers of Jesus to grasp. Why do you think that is? Well, I've explained to you why this is. Because all of us have this drive for a well-lived life. All of us have this drive to find fulfillment. All of us have this drive to be liked by just the right people. And all of us have this drive to be secure in our own identity. The drive, it's powerful. You think we'll invent a code or a tradition or a set of ethics to get us there? Is that even a question we can ask? Every human being does this. But we come to the conclusion in verses 20 through 23. We've seen how this doesn't make sense to the world and to the religious leaders. And we've seen how it doesn't make sense or barely makes sense to the disciples. The only way this makes sense is through Jesus Christ. 
You see, Jesus says that our code, it may touch our stomach, but it'll never touch our what? Never touch our heart. And he says in verse 19 that any ethic only operates on a person's stomach. He says it enters not his heart. Underline that in the Bible, enters not his heart. And he says in verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil. It says in the ESV, evil thoughts, it's just one word in the Greek, and it just is evil, badness, wickedness. All that stuff comes right out of your heart. Treat your stomach as special as you want. It doesn't touch your heart. Now, all of the disciples believe uh, something about the heart that we actually don't. You, you know, we think that the heart is about our emotions and our passions and our intentions. You know, we, uh, we say things like, follow your heart, don't follow your mind, that sort of thing. Use the force, right? But Jesus' disciples, they don't think this way. When Jesus uses this word for heart, they know what he means. They believe that the heart was the very center of a person. It's that power plant that drives all of the thoughts, all of the emotions, and all of the actions of a person. Every thought flows from the heart. Every emotion and every, every action flows from the heart. It's the very center of the power plant. And if it's the center of the power plant, if there's any imperfection there, that imperfection really matters. You go back to that illustration of a bike. If the handbrake doesn't work real well, or the derailleur's not working real well, you still make that thing work. But if the frame isn't working well, that's going to translate to everything else and nothing else really is going to work at all. If there's any imperfection in the heart, well, that's not a tangential concern. Isn't it interesting how we love to talk about our strengths and our weaknesses? And, and we seem real comfortable doing that. My strengths are this, my weaknesses are this. And maybe we emphasize our strengths more than our uh, weaknesses, but Jesus is saying, look, if there's even one weakness, and all of us will admit there's at least one weakness, if there's even one weakness, well, it means even your strengths are colored by that weakness. Do you believe that? If you have even one weakness, one imperfection, you think that doesn't somehow translate into every single strength of thought, strength of emotion, strength of action? Jesus says any imperfection is heart imperfection and impacts, impacts all those things, thoughts, emotions, and will. So in verses 21 through 23, Jesus, he gives us this summary, and I, I think that's the best way to read this summary. He says that the, uh, the, the heart is evil, and that's where evil comes from, and he lists these 12 things that flow out of the heart. Scholars debate what is meant by these 12. How's he, how's he uh, uh, trying to get us to understand something about our wickedness? He's not saying that everyone commits every one of these sins in exactly the same way. I like how one commentator handles these 12. I'm just going to say this and move on. One commentator says that if you look at these 12 items, evil thoughts isn't one of them. You just, just count after evil thoughts, there's 12 of them. And a commentator says, look, the first six are plural and the second six are singular. Does that mean anything? This commentator says the first six are more about actions and the last six are more about attitudes. 
We don't know for certain. But the point is that all of these are lodged in the heart. All of these uh, emit from the heart. Don't think that it's just about actions. It's also about attitudes because that's the power of the heart. Even if only one action or one attitude can describe you as being imperfect, then the case is proved. Your heart is bad. Better ethics never going to change that. But here's where we need to conclude. Jesus can. You see, the power of the gospel is that it can touch the power plan of who you are as a person. None of the world religions offer this. The gospel says that Jesus gives you a new heart and that in him you are a new creation. That's a divine mystery, isn't it? But I want to say a few things about that and conclude. The first thing is this, is we need to understand from this passage that you can't fix yourself fundamentally. No jokes, no kidding about it. You cannot fix yourself fundamentally. You can become a better person in one sense, but you can't fix yourself ultimately. You need someone else to do that. Right there, Christianity differs from every world religion. The second thing is this. The heart of who you are is fundamentally transformed by the gospel because that's where the gospel operates. The gospel digs deep to that power plant, finds the center, and works there. You're no longer defiled before God. Do you, do you understand that that's what that means, Christian? You're no longer defiled before God. In his sight, you are pure and lovely and beautiful and delightful. His affection runs over for you. Why? Because the gospel has done something to you. Here's the mystery. You continue to sin. I continue to sin. But this sin is actually defeated. The sin is not coursing through us in the same way that sin courses through someone who's not a believer. Sin doesn't ultimately own the Christian. The Christian is not ultimately in bondage to sin. The Christian, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, is able to hate sin, mortify sin, confess sin, repent of it, even if they're doing this all over again, time and time and time again. Sin doesn't own us. And what that means, it means the gospel works so deep that it alters our relationship with sin, that we actually can confess our sin and should confess our sin and understand ourselves always as sinners saved by grace alone. We can talk like that with a good conscience because Jesus works at the level of the heart. It changes our relationship to sin. There's one other thing. And I want to finish with this as we come to the Lord's table. Not only does the gospel change our relationship to our own sin, the gospel actually changes our relationship to others. Go back to that job interview or that first date or that meeting with a loan officer. You You might have a successful meeting, but when the meeting's over, the meeting's over. You did it well, and then it's done. If it continues, you know, maybe you're going to develop into this trusted friendship with this person. Maybe that might happen with the first date. A trusted friendship might develop from that relationship. But if that friendship is not spiritual, if that friendship is not a friendship between two Christians, that friendship is always going to have some kind of veil between those two individuals. Let me put it this way. Christian friendship is the kind of friendship in which we can drop that veil 
and we can say to our brother and sister, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I have sinned against you and I've hurt you. I have asked God to forgive me. I need to ask you to forgive me. A non-believer can't do that. It's always going to be a show. Always. The gospel actually changes our relationship with our own sin, but the gospel changes our relationship with one another, that we can actually call out who we truly are. Otherwise, it's just a show, and two people putting on a show. That's not a relationship. What this passage tells us is that only the gospel goes to the level of heart, and because the gospel works at the level of the heart, you're actually pure before God. And at the second coming, you will know this to be true, even if today we struggle to believe it. Well, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, let me uh, offer a prayer to uh, carry this into what we are about to do together. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that uh, the gospel is your power to save, and we thank you that the gospel, um, that it's not a game, not a code, not a checklist. The gospel really and truly transforms. Father, we thank you for the gospel and ask that you uh, would remind us of that gospel as we come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen.